Shut up and sit down. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to Soundplay, a radio show that features audio work produced by students at Salem State University. We're your hosts. I'm Tanya Rodriguez, a professor in English here at SSU. And I'm Kayla, an English student with an affinity for French tea and poetry. We'll start the episode today with two 90-second episodes from a faux podcast Tanya made up for an assignment in her audio storytelling class. She called the podcast Salem According to Sound, which is a direct derivative from the real podcast The World According to Sound. The World According to Sound is a really interesting show in that it disrupts everything we think we know about what constitutes good storytelling. The two hosts, Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett, created the show on the premise that they didn't want to tell listeners a story and how or what to think. Rather, they wanted to create opportunities for listeners to engage with sound and construct their own experience and interpretation of how that sound functions in the world. This show moves language and narration off center stage and replaces it with long, unnarrated stretches of sound. First up, we have Jill Brown's Salem According to Sound episode, Vegetable Orchestra. This is the sound of people making music with vegetables. The Vienna Vegetable Orchestra has been creating beautiful music and delicious soup for over 18 years. It all begins with a trip to the market. For two to three hours, vegetables are poked and tapped on and squeezed until the musicians harvest the bunches that will produce the right sounds. The vegetables on the table fall into three baskets, ready-made pumpkin drums, simple instruments like an eggplant clapper, and then more complicated instruments like the zucchini clarinet. and bits are shaved, and at the end of the show, the audience gathers to enjoy a hearty bowl of soup with the musicians. During the time of the Salem witch trials, bubbles were frequently associated with a test to determine if a person was a witch. An accused person would have their finger tied to their opposite toe and would then be lowered into a body of water for all to see. As the body submerged, the sound of the bubbles either persisted to signal sinking or came to a halt if the person floated to the surface. If the bubbles continued, the person was cleared of all accusations and possibly drowned if they were not removed from the water in time. If they floated, however, they were deemed a witch and faced the consequences.
Next up is Matt with an audio documentary called Culture Jammers. But before we hear his introduction, a word from our sponsors. Salem State University Radio. They must pay us millions to stop broadcasting. WMWM Salem, 91.7 FM and WMWMonline.com. I didn't want to talk. She just sat with me. That was all I really needed. We got back. One day he called me out of the blue. And it's comforting to know that I always can count on him to have my back. She called me from time to time. I really didn't think I needed any help. It took me from being really depressed to feeling like somebody cared to give me some hope. Just that one text. Be there. Your call. Your presence. Your words. Your support. Be there and help save a life. Learn more about preventing suicide at VeteransCrisisLine.net. Hey, this is Dan Finnerty from the Dan Band. You're listening to WMWM 91.7, fucking Salem. Coffee Time has been a family-owned and operated bakery since 1978. They offer scratch-made pies and scones, and now through Thanksgiving, apple cider donuts and pumpkin cheesecake. Grab a fresh cup of coffee or real hot chocolate milk to go with your favorite treat. Coffee Time, setting the standard for homemade baked goods right here in Salem. Coffee Time, 96 Bridge Street, Route 1A in Salem. My name is Matthew Eldar, and this is a documentary that I produced for Professor Rodrigue's audio storytelling class, which explores the social phenomenon known as culture jamming, and just a few of the phenomenon's more prominent figures. The documentary also highlights their bizarre influences on society, and how those influences pervaded popular culture of today. These are the stories of how an act of rebellion became an art form, Social dissatisfaction led to a new belief system, and how a group of adventurers took on the mission of breaking society out of their waking slumber. Along the way, they changed society and taught those who were willing to step outside of their everyday orderly patterns and embrace the joyous chaos inherent in everyday life. The narration you'll be hearing is by my amazingly talented wife, Emily Eldar. I hope that you enjoy. Thank you. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you wear the clothes that you wear? Listen to the music you listen to. Buy the products you buy. Like the things that you like. Believe what you believe. Have you ever questioned any of your fundamental beliefs? Who are you really when you strip away all of the influence of the outside world? It's consumerism, it's capitalism, it's popular culture. Have you ever stopped to wonder what life would be like if you were to really look beyond these learned beliefs and conventions? Throughout history, there have been movements, some orchestrated, some sprouting up from an unspoken societal need that brought like-minded people together to disrupt the social conscience, to disturb the comfortable, to open the eyes of those who walk through life blind to its larger truths. This phenomenon, is unofficially known as culture jamming. I take the roads less traveled. Well, I'm on my way. When I was a young boy, people tried to tell me what I should be. And then a wise man sang, 
In this documentary, I will present to you just a few examples in which culture jammers have made an effort to break people out of their sleepwalking and introduce them to a more creative and free-thinking world. On this journey, I will also introduce you to several of the key players in these movements and perhaps even inspire a few of you to go out and make some changes in the world. I take the roads less traveled I'll see you someday The Dada artists were discontent with the violence of World War I, rampant nationalism, capitalist society, and the notions of high art at the time. These artists, who worked in many forms of visual art and literature, took up arms and condemned these aspects of culture by creating works that defied reason and logic. Perhaps mirroring the lack of sense they observed in the world at large, they instead thrived in the anti-rational, anti-aesthetic, and sometimes the outright nonsensical. One figure who stood out, even among the Dadaists, was Marcel Duchamp, a French-American artist whose work challenged the very notion of what we think of as art. It was with his piece entitled Fountain, a ready-made artwork that was submitted to a high-profile art gallery in New York City that he forever changed the course of artistic history as we know it. The piece in question, smooth white porcelain curving behind that perfect museum glass, was, in fact, nothing more than a urinal. Here's Dr. Betty Ann Brown, art historian, critic, and curator at California State University, speaking on Duchamp's Fountain. So Marcel Duchamp did things like he went to a hardware store and he walked through looking at everything and he picked out a urinal. Now, for us in the early 21st century, seeing a urinal is no great shakes, who cares? But remember, he did this when Victorian sensibility was very dominant. So just the fact that he picked a urinal was shocking. He picks a urinal and he declares it an artwork and submits it to an art exhibit, signing it R Mutt, that is the letter R period Mutt, and dating it as if a dog had done it. Marcel Duchamp did this to challenge the Western cultural values that had led to World War I, and he wanted to challenge the very foundation of thinking in that society. Dada was art as anti-art, art that contributed to the culture by challenging the culture. Duchamp went on to further baffle the art world with yet another piece, L-H-O-O-Q, or Look, which was simply a print of the Mona Lisa with a mustache drawn on her face. Here is a clip of Duchamp himself speaking about L-H-O-O-Q. We have this one here, is a, that's the Dada period, you see. The Mona Lisa with a mustache and a goatee. That was, of course, a great iconoclastic gesture on my part, and um, sacrilegious, blasphemous, all you want. Duchamp set out to change the way people perceived art, to make art not just about what is seen, 
but also how it makes the viewer think. Art had now become a conversation between the piece and the viewer, each work incomplete without a subsequent human reaction. Here's a clip from MoMA curator Anne Temkin speaking about the reason for ready-mades. All of these notions that had gone for centuries with the idea of an artist, such as that you were a skilled painter or that you knew how to carve or to mold, all of these ideas associated with the beauty of a creation or with the suddenness of inspiration are gone. People tend to romanticize quite a bit the meaning and it brings out some really uh, kind of almost like parodies of what art historians or critics might say. But Duchamp maintained that it wasn't a matter of aesthetics and that what really was a matter of the artist's brain. I think what he was going for was the idea that all of this took away the artist's or the viewer's retina as the most important thing. And Duchamp called painting retinal art. And it was sort of like it was all about what you would see with brushstroke and color. Duchamp is trying to say retinal is substituting a lot for just dumbness, almost like religion is the opiate of the people. Let's get away from that and let's get some ideas going. Here's a clip of Duchamp speaking about ready-mades, a form of found object artwork that he invented and popularized. Naturally, as a sort of conclusion or consequence of dehumanization of the, of the work of art in su such a point that I came to the idea of the ready-made. I call them ready-made, you see. It was no, no more to do with plastic art I, as such, no more uh, considerations of technique or, you know, uh, as to all the schools before had. In fact, it was a negation, a refusal to accept anything like that, to deny any preoccupation of... Um, of theoretical interest, you see. The Dada movement, spearheaded by Duchamp, caused the art world to question the very idea of art and how we decide what can wear the mantle of art. Here's a clip from MoMA curator Anne Temkin speaking about the reaction to Duchamp's work. It's amazing, when I go on tours through these galleries with visitors, you know, they're looking at all kinds of abstract, pretty difficult to decipher paintings on canvas. And they're taking it really well. When we come to here, still a hundred years later, in very Leggett, why is that art? And I think that's one of the great tributes to Duchamp having succeeded at what he was setting out to do. He got people to question what otherwise is something that they just take for granted without a second thought. While the Dada movement was not the beginning of subversive art, it certainly solidified subversive art, surrealism, and culture jamming in modern culture. Of course, as usual, a group of people don't get together very long. In two years or three years of it was enough, and they began fighting together. They hated each other. So they dispersed and became another group from itself on the ashes of Dada to become the surrealism.
Well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free. Because there's a million things to be. You know that there are. The next group of culture jammers I will be introducing to you is called the Discordian Society. This group was inspired by philosophy and religion and ultimately questioned the very nature of chaos in the world. The late 1950s saw the world once again thrown into chaos in the wake of the Vietnam War. One day, in a bowling alley, much like hundreds of other American bowling alleys, tucked away in a suburb of California, two young friends, one of whom was recently home from serving in the Marines, sit searching for a sense of meaning amid all this chaos. Through their philosophical musings, one thing became clear to these friends. Order is not a natural state of the world. The natural state, in fact, lies in chaos. Those young men were Kerry Thornley and Greg Hill, later known as Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst and Malaclips the Younger. The following are Kerry Thornley's own words discussing the formation of their philosophy and the development of what would become the religion of Discordianism. And we were uh, discussing uh, philosophy, and we were talking about order and chaos. And uh, my theory was a Darwinistic theory that uh, order uh, emerged from chaos uh, and was in fact simply the prevailing form of chaos. And uh, Greg's theory was that order was projected on the universe, that it didn't exist at all, that it was a creation of the human mind that order was entirely in perception and had nothing to do with what was going on out there in a completely chaotic universe. And so, somewhere in the middle of our argument, Greg happened to mention that there was a Greek goddess of chaos and confusion. and there, Her name was Eris, spelled E-R-I-S. And I said, well, you know, what we need is not so much an explanation for order. We both agree to that. Uh, what the world needs is an explanation for chaos and why there's so much of it. And so there, at that point we decided to start a religion uh, worshipping the Greek goddess of chaos and confusion who uh, the Romans called uh, Discordia and thus Discordianism was born. Discordianism developed into a religion which held the Greek goddess of chaos, Eris, as its matriarch. A religion which questioned the very nature of religion itself and encouraged its followers to question reality as we think we know it. As it continued to grow, the movement began to take on new acolytes who were inspired by Discordianism's questioning nature. Here is one of the Discordian Society's early recruits, Robert Anton Wilson, speaking about the beginning of Discordianism and becoming a Pope. Uh, the fascinating thing about chaos theory is that I was one of the pioneers without even knowing it. Back in 1957, uh, two friends of mine named Malaclips the Younger and Ho Chi Zen were in a bowling alley in Yorba Linda, uh, where the birthplace of Richard Nixon, and they uh, were arguing about why there's so much chaos in the world. 
And according to Ho Chi Zan, a chimpanzee walked in and said, Read Bullfinch. All this chaos is due to Aris, and then disappeared in a puff of green smoke. According to Malaclips, they figured it out themselves, and Ho Chi Zan just invented the miraculous talking chimpanzee to make this religion more attractive to the gullible. So the Ejects communicated each other. Malaclips became the head of the Discordian Orthodoxy, and Omar uh, Ho Chi Zan became the head of the Lunatic Fringe. And as soon as I learned about this religion, I excommunicated both of them, and we were all popes of three different uh, factions of the Discordian society, which is uh, true to the spirit of Malaclips's original revelation, we Discordians must stick apart. We used to print cards that said the bearer of this card is a genuine and authorized pope, so please treat him right. Good forever, guaranteed by the House of Apostles of Aris on the site of the few beautiful future San Andreas Canyon, San Francisco. Well, uh, that card has been reprinted quite a bit. It's in Malaclips's Magnum Opiate, the Principia Discordia, or How I Found Goddess and What I Did to Her After I Found Her. It's also in uh, the novel Illuminatus by Bob Shea and me. And it's even in a serious sociological study called Drawing Down the Moon, Goddess Worship in America by Margot Adler, a sociologist who's the granddaughter of Alfred Adler, one of the three founders of modern depth psychology. She treats the Aresian Discordian revelation as a serious part of the pagan revival and prints the card. So anybody who wants to be a pope can just cut the card out of one of those books and have your own pope card. However, if you don't think you need credentials, you become a pope as soon as you hear me speak about this, because everybody who hears my voice is immediately pontificated. So every time I appeared on TV, I announced that everybody listening to me was a Discordian pope, absolutely infallible, has the right to excommunicate all the other Discordian popes and this vastly increased our membership handing out cards we only had about 10,000 popes since I've started doing pontifications on radio and TV we've got close to 20 million popes at least now uh, we're not going to stop until every man woman and child on this planet is an authentic Discordian Pope and then let's, start, uh, then let's see how that old queen in the Vatican reacts when he's only one among the whole population of the earth. We're all popes together. This group of rather odd friends had decided that in a naturally uncertain world, it is better to embrace chaos and discord. The tool with which they expressed their chaotic mischief became known as Operation Mindfuck. Along with friend and colleague Bob Shea, Wilson became a primary contributor to Operation Mindfuck. At the time, these two were editors at Playboy magazine and began slipping in letters which referred to a series of fabricated conspiracy theories, namely those involving a war between the Discordian Society and the Illuminati, previously known only as the Bavarian Illuminati of the 18th century. These conspiracy theories were, of course, entirely fictional, but they did create an imaginary conflict for the Discordians, expanding on their mythology and causing society to question all it thinks it knows as true. Wilson and Shea went on to write a series of novels inspired by Discordian philosophy entitled The Illuminatus Trilogy, which was subsequently adapted into a play. 
Through philosophical writings and absurd conspiracy theories, this small group caused society to question the chaotic world around them and the nature of chaos itself. The final movement I will be highlighting is called the Cacophony Society. ...from the norm, from the conventional. In 1986, some Bay Area eccentrics banded together to form the San Francisco Cacophony Society. This society has no rules, no regulations. Its main goal is to make life more interesting by sharing unusual experiences. It's, it's just a, a group of urban adventurers is the way they build themselves. Um, and they just do, you know, make their own fun make their own lives interesting without waiting for someone else to do it for them. It's complete anarchy. Anyone can give an event, and it can be anything. Well, we, did, uh, we did ride the cable car in the nude on Easter Sunday morning one year. Eccentrics are uh, people who follow their own path and go their own way. A group formed in the late 1980s dedicated to creating social and political disruption through the use of public stunts and pranks in an attempt to make their own lives and those of everyone who witnesses them a little more interesting. One of the founding members of the Cacophony Society was a man named John Law. Law is an American artist and was an urban explorer, as well as a key member of the now-defunct group of urban explorers known as the Suicide Club, which later evolved into the Cacophony Society. Law's urban exploring eventually became more public, as well as socially experimental. These urban exploring events soon began to transform into something entirely different, taking on the role of modern culture jamming. A few of these stunts included having parties in underground sewage drains dressed in formal attire. There's uh, storm drains that run through uh, Oakland and they're underground for about two miles and uh, about 40 people dressed up um, in uh, formal wear from the waist up and uh, we walked uh, two miles up through the sewers or the storm drains and had a party at the end. Climbing and holding a picnic on the Golden Gate Bridge, defacing billboards to promote anti-consumerist messages, and burning a 40-foot wooden effigy in the desert. We'll get back to that last one in a bit. Two of the more publicized culture jamming events in Cacophony Society history are the Salmon Run and SantaCon. The Salmon Run took place during a major marathon and featured members of the Cacophony Society dressed head to toe as salmon, running upstream in the opposite direction of the marathon runners. SantaCon is an event that started in San Francisco during the Christmas season of 1994, but has since spread to cities all over the country. 
The message behind SantaCon is one of anti-consumerism and is meant to disrupt what have become the materialistic and uncreative traditions of the Christmas season. This is about taking what people think they want and giving them way too much of it. And then they realize they didn't want that at all. At a typical SantaCon, it is not uncommon for thousands of people of all genders, shapes, and sizes to show up to designated public areas dressed head to toe as Santa Claus. These Santas roam around malls and city streets, singing Christmas carols, and have even been known to take toys from stores and give them to kids, avoid police, and sometimes get beaten and arrested by said police in front of those very same kids. It's a jolly time for all. John Law speaking on SantaCon. They had heard that we were anarchist Santas who were there to trash the town. We came. I'm opening, you know, we were talking to this intelligence bureau cop. I'm opening my wallet going, look, we have credit cards. We're like the Elks Club. We're going to spend money here. Santas are split up in different groups. And we're, each one of us has a cop card following us. I swear to God, it's, cra it's ridiculous. You know, we knew that the police had tapped our phones. There's a much long story. But uh, they knew our agenda. They had printed out our agenda and given it to people downtown, to the, to the, uh, to the uh, 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 businesses downtown, saying, look, the Santa anarchists are coming here to trash your businesses, which is not true at all. They followed us around all, uh, all weekend. They wouldn't let us into the mall. So the Santas were collecting in this park across, from the, across the street from the, uh, from the mall. Then see the SWAT cops and, the, and the, the tactical officers putting their shields and visors on and getting ready to beat up all the Santas. And they were in a line protecting the mall. And they're like, you can't go in the mall. Uh, we're really sorry, but we'll have to arrest you if you do. We don't care if you have a thousand Santas. We're like, okay, so we're all bummed out. And so we, we start collecting all the Santas together, some of whom are getting really antsy and like they want to start, they want to you start yelling epithets at the police. And we're like, no, you can't do that. You can't say F the police. You can't say that. You can't say that because you don't understand. You lose if you say that. So we got all the Santas, started running towards the mall, and by this time it was a, a wave of Santas, like Bedouin coming over a sand dune to get, to get a train. And seriously, it was, it was ridiculous. And then we line, and the cops are flipping out. They're like popping their trunks, putting on their body armor, freaking out. We line up across the street, sing jingle bells without the dirty lyrics, do the human wave, go Merry Christmas, and turn around and walk back into the park. And that was that. Here's Cacophony Society member Chuck Polinuk talking about the significance of these types of events. It took me years and years to kind of recognize what was so appealing about cacophony and about the different sort of cacophony societies that I enjoy depicting in books. These kind of short-term you know, ways people have of, of you know, interacting. And I started to read the, the British cultural anthropologist Victor Turner. 
And Victor Turner talks a lot about the rituals throughout the year, the, the liminal rituals that occur between seasons. Halloween is a liminal ritual. Christmas is a liminal ritual. But there are also limnoid rituals where they can happen at any point in the year. And they typically happen once, and people enter into them completely with a flattened social status. Nobody is greater or lesser than anyone else. And everyone enjoys each other's company and a feeling of communitas. And these limnoid occurrences tend to be little experiments with the social model to see whether or not people will relate to it, people will enjoy it. And so in a way, you, you throw this little social model experiment out and you run it for two or three hours, and if people love it, then it becomes Burning Man. It comes back year after year. And your joy is that you are the one that came up with this odd little social model and you threw it out, you made it run as, as an experiment. And it's interesting, too, that so many things in the world that are huge rituals, that Martin Luther posted his, uh, his protests during the liminal ritual of Mardi Gras, when, when the churches were open to people eating, and people did kind of uh, sacrilegious things in the churches. Mm -hmm. And in some communities, priests even rode in carts through the streets and threw shit at parishioners. <laughs> that, the social hierarchy was reversed just for a small period of time, just this little window. And that's when kind of the, the, the chaos, the opening can occur, the articulation for a major change in society. And so I'm just curious, I think that if maybe Occupy had had a sense of kind of joy, a better service to its participants, then we would have had another Occupy. We would have had this kind of continuing, growing, building Occupy. Why is it that Occupy disappeared after one year, but Burning Man got bigger and bigger and bigger? And right. I think it is because Burning Man serves people better. It gives people a greater return, a greater sense of joy in their lives. And I think that's what cacophony does. The, 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 this kind of lack of an overt political agenda gives it a greater sense of freedom and joy. Let's get back to that effigy in the desert. The now largest of all the Cacophony Society events is what has become known as Burning Man, though its first official title was A Bad Day at Black Rock. We went to the Black Rock Desert this year and had a big um, camping trip, <laughs> a very unusual camping trip. They build a huge 40-foot structure of a man every year and they burn it at the, uh, on the summer equinox, the longest day of summer. I ran away from home when I was a child and joined the carnival, so I learned how to eat fire. And I helped to light the burning man by blowing gasoline all over The event saw humble beginnings as a party among a few friends on a beach on the summer solstice of 1986, which turned into an annual event in the Black Rock Desert when the ever-growing effigy reached a size which was no longer welcome near civilization. Although John Law has moved on from Burning Man, the event now draws in artists and revelers from around the world. 
This year's Burning Man attendance reached nearly 70,000 people. True to the ideals of John Law's original group, The Suicide Club, Burning Man was founded on 10 principles. Radical inclusion, radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, communal effort, civic responsibility, gifting, decommodification, participation, immediacy, and leave no trace. This created a community that does not rely on any monetary system, but instead encourages individuals to trade in gifts, art, and services to each other. The Leave No Trace principle comes directly from Law's urban exploring background as individuals are urged to take out everything they bring in and completely clean up after themselves. John Law on the origins of Burning Man. Kevin and I had come to realize in sometime in like, I guess, early 1990 that both of us had been out to the Black Rock Desert. He had gone out with uh, P. Siegel and uh, Cindy Kolnick and, and a few other people to a wind sculpture festival in 1989 uh, that was put on by Planet X out on the desert, which is a, a small art collective. Not part of this is pre-Burning Man. They had nothing to do with, with any burn, any Burning Man thing. Burning Man was just basically a uh, you know like a, a bonfire at that time. And so Kevin, being an artist, you know, said we should do an event out there. You know, we should do like a like an art event out there. And I'm like, sure, let's do one. So we started organizing one uh, early in. Uh, uh, in 1990, and then at the same time, Michael, Michael, and I, and a few other people had gotten pretty heavily involved in start in helping with the Baker Beach uh, Burning Man event. And at that point, Burning Man was basically it was a bonfire on the beach. You know, I mean, it was. Uh, uh, I think in '88 uh, there were you know maybe a hundred people, '89 maybe a couple hundred people, and then in 1990 we went out at summer solstice because the event was to be done in summer solstice, and uh, it got shut down by the police. So that was the first Burning Man on, on, uh, on, on, the, on the desert was this cacophony event that Kevin and I had planned out. And when, when uh, the thing got shut down on Baker Beach, Kevin said, hey, why don't we invite Jerry James, who's the main organizer, and Larry Harvey, uh, who were the two, two main guys kind of putting on this bonfire, why don't we invite them to come to the desert? And Jerry had been, already been in cacophony. He had, he had solicited us earlier. Um, he thought it was a cool group, and he joined in 88. And, uh, and he was doing this, you know, this this uh, event every year, the, the Burning Man event with, uh, with with his buddy Larry, and and uh, so we kind of, at that point the two groups kind of conjoined, you know, the group of carpenters led by Jerry, and uh, this group of people in cacophony, um, kind of conjoined to make the early early Burning Man. The cacophony society reacted to Burning Man like like it was natural. I mean, it was a, couldn't have been a more natural thing to do. See that cacophony was about pushing your boundaries and about doing weird things and trying to trying to work together as a group to, to create a life, really, to create experience, to create experience. So the Black Rock Desert was a perfect place for this. It was a blank slate. All the experience that you could create there was held in bold relief by the complete starkness and emptiness of the environment. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It wasn't chosen to be or designed as an anarchy, politically anarchist event, but it was a naturally anarchist gathering where there were no rules. People were, in, people were encouraged to do whatever they wanted to do. They were encouraged not to be dicks, okay? So if you were, you know, but, but there, were no, there was no law. Burning Man, 
as an experiment in creating an immediate though temporary culture that runs counter to societal norms, has been a resounding success. The culture has taken root and sprouted all throughout America, inspiring artistic communities to grow in counterculture pockets and even hold their own regional burn events. Another of the major figures in the Cacophony Society is Chuck Palahniuk, author of the novel and later famed movie of the same name, Fight Club. The novel was very much inspired by Palahniuk's experience with the Cacophony Society, as well as counterculture in general. The book's major themes run in the spirit of the Cacophony Society, with the main character starting his journey of self-discovery as a lowly insurance appraiser living a successful middle-class life with all the consumer's trappings one could possibly hope for in a condo filled with IKEA. He then becomes the anti-heroic leader of a major anti-consumerist, anti-establishment terrorist group. Though the idea is taken to the nth degree in the book and subsequent movie, the Cacophony Society's influence is still very clear. Here is Chuck Palahniuk speaking about Fight Club and the Cacophony Society. I saw a flyer for something called Voodoo Weddings that was going to be held at a, an ancient tiki bar here in Portland. And they were going to hold this tropical musical festival. And they were going to marry people in these quote-unquote voodoo wedding ceremonies. And I got there early and I staked out a table with my friends. And then all of these very trendy, again, these very hip, slick, Jordache jeans people showed up and kind of took over the whole scene. But during the high point of the voodoo weddings, the nerdy, geeky, cacophony people started to throw raw chicken guts ah. into the crowd as part of the voodoo wedding. Cool. And it was the opposite of the movie Carrie. Instead of the cool kids dumping viscera on the dweeb kid, it was the dweeb kid throwing viscera on all the cool kids, oh, including wow. me. And I was so thrilled and so impressed that these people had fooled me and that my drink was ruined and that I was spattered with blood and that everyone around me was screaming and I just had to be part of this group. Cacophony was basically an organization of people who had really boring jobs. They were uh, letter carriers for the post office, they were bookstore clerks at Powell's, they were people who had really, you know, very structured hourly job lives. And they needed a way to have chaos in their lives for a very structured, like, window of time. You know, if we do this kind of a theme party, we can be crazy, we can be insane anarchists from 4 o'clock until midnight on Saturday night. <laughs> and so it was a way of having completely structured chaos in your life and being able to schedule that every week. Uh, kind of an experiential potluck because people would host it, people would come up with concepts the way you did when you were kids and you would play a game. Okay, the boards, the boards are safe, but the ground is lava. So if you touch the ground, and you would do that, you just arbitrarily come up with rules. You know, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk, you just come up with a rule and another rule and you invent the game instantly. And you have the freedom and the authority to do that. And, and Cacophony let us do that every week and give up our boring lives for you know, two or three hours. In a way, I thought it was kind of the ultimate joke because at the time I understood that 20th Century Fox didn't want to make this movie that was going to cost 
$80 million. And it was going to cost $20 million to promote. And the glory was that nobody wanted to make the movie, except for the people who were in the movie. And nobody wanted to miss out on being this project that, that Brad Pitt wanted to make and David Fincher wanted to make and uh, Edward Norton wanted to make. And so in a way, Fox got kind of blackmailed into making this. And in a way, I thought that, that it was the ultimate kind of cacophony thing and that it was something that people were doing because they wanted to do it, not because they wanted a paycheck at the end of it. And everybody associated with that movie came up to me at some point during the filming and said, this is unlike anything we've ever done. You know, we've made so many movies that were so programmed and so slotted to please their audience. This is the first time we've made a movie that we really wanted to make. And so it was that kind of spirit of cacophony on a big, big scale. Though I have covered only a few important moments in culture jamming history, its seeds can be traced back even as far as the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates. The tradition of culture jamming is still alive and well today, through many avenues, including street artists such as Banksy and Shepard Ferry, both of whose work have been aggressively political and anti-capitalist, as well as television personalities like Tom Green, Sasha Baron Cohen, and Eric Andre, whose works question and lampoon the conventions we are preened to enjoy and expect. In a society in which conformity and materialism have become not only the norm, but also the ideal, it is important that there remain those who would think outside of that paradigm and are willing to attempt to break down the status quo in our society. These people are the culture jammers. And, as the esteemed leaders of the Cacophony Society would say, you may already be a member. I'm different, don't care who knows it. Something about me is not the same, yeah. I'm different, that's how it goes. Ain't gonna play your goddamn game. Got a different way. That was an audio documentary, again entitled Culture Jammers. And that's what we have for today. Please turn into our next show on Wednesday, March 6th at 4 p.m. See you next time on SoundCloud.